Well, when you talk about home, some of you probably thought about your apartment or your house, the place where you live. Maybe you talked about your, your family or the family you grew up with. Uh, some of you probably talked about your hometown. But I wonder how many of us talked about people that are not our relatives and places that are not our residents. Because uh, if you're like me, home is more than just my house or my parents' house. It's also my experience with certain groups of people. For me, home includes the dining room table at my best friend's house. Home includes hanging out with my roommates from college. Home includes uh, the people who were in the first community group my wife and I were a part of when we first got married. Home is where you are known and loved and welcomed. And, And for some of us, that might not actually include our biological families. And for many of us, even if we've got good families, often it includes a wider community. So what gives us that sense of home? How does a group become close enough to feel like family? Last week and this week, we've been doing this kind of mini-series on belonging. It's called In This Together. We're looking at a key value here at Christ Community Church. Our mission as a church is to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. We're marked by four things, belonging, growing, serving, and reaching. And we've been looking at that first value. Uh, Next week, we're actually going to be celebrating our belonging as a church. That's what Vision Weekend is all about. Uh, You should be looking forward to this when Pastor Jim lays out the vision for this upcoming year. It's going to be really exciting as we reaffirm our commitment to the church, as we uh, commission our leaders, as we begin the week of prayer with Ignite. Uh, It's going to be a great celebration uh, as we experience a sense of belonging together as a church. But today, we're actually going to be talking about what actually makes close relationships, especially within a church community. Because I know a lot of you coming to this church, because it's a big church, kind of ask that question. How do you come into a place like this and actually get connected? Because a lot of you, you come because you started coming because you enjoy the services, or, or you connected with our amazing student ministries, or just because the teaching pastors are so devastatingly handsome. <laughs> but once you start coming, how do you move from being a part of the crowd to being a part of the community? How do you get that sense of family here? Well, to help us answer that question, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. It's a New Testament book. The New Testament starts with five big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And Romans is the first book after Acts. Uh, Romans is a letter. It's the most famous letter written by Paul, who is an early leader in the Jesus movement. And Paul had spent his life traveling from city to city within the Roman Empire, preaching the good news about Jesus and starting little communities of Christ followers wherever he could. And as he traveled from place to place, he would often write letters to the communities, to the churches that he had left behind. And this letter is actually to the church in Rome. What's interesting about this is Paul has never been to Rome. He hasn't been there yet. Uh, So someone else planted this church, but he is planning on going and visiting them. And he's writing a letter to sort of prepare for his visit. But just because Paul hasn't been there doesn't mean he doesn't have any friends there. Uh, The Roman Empire had this incredible system of roads, and so a lot of early Christians uh, were some of the first people in the world to be able to travel very easily uh, across, you know, countries and empires. And so uh, they would go from city to city, and some of the people that Paul had met in other churches and other places had actually ended up in Rome. And so when Paul wrote this letter, which was a letter to be read publicly in front of the whole church, at the very end, he greets some of his friends that he knows are actually there. So we're actually going to read that portion now, starting in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. 
They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. Greet my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philegelus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, it may seem odd to call a list of names a message from God, but that's what it is. So let's thank him for it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because we are 21st readers of this passage, there are some things about it that we don't notice. But if we had been in the first century in the Roman Empire, they would have jumped off the page at us. Because this is a group of people that probably should not have been listed together. There's some really odd combinations in this group of Paul's friends. For one thing, there are both rich and poor people in this list. You've got some people who are wealthy enough to own a home and to have a household with servants. And you've got other people whose names were typically reserved for slaves in Roman society. And this is remarkable because in that society, it was really stratified. The upper and lower classes didn't mix socially. But Paul is greeting these people as equals, and not just as equals, but as friends. Also in this list, you've got people who are both Jews and Gentiles. Many of the names here are Greek or Latin names, so they're probably Gentiles. But other people have Jewish names, and at some points, Paul actually calls them out as his fellow Jews. Now, that division between Jew and Gentile actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham uh, to be his people and all of his descendants after him, the nation of Israel, he separates them from the rest of the nations. And originally, originally, that separation was to keep the people of Israel from falling into the idolatrous ways and the sinful practices of the nations around them. But after thousands of years, by the time you get to the first century, a lot of that has become less of protection and more about pride, kind of an us-them mentality. And so Jesus was a Jew, and all of his first followers were Jews. But after his resurrection, Jesus said, I don't want you to just go out to tell Jews about what I've done. I want you to tell every ethnic group on the planet. But because of this sort of longstanding tension between Jews and Gentiles, there was prejudice that got worked into the early Christian communities. So much of the book of Acts is actually about this tension of how these two groups come together. A lot of Paul's letters, including the book of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, are about how to navigate life in this sort of mixed cultural community. In other words, racism and diversity were actually a major concern in the early church. And even though bringing these two groups of people together was really difficult, the remarkable thing is that it actually was happening. When you look at this list of names, you see that it, people from different backgrounds were actually coming together as friends. The other thing in this list of names is that you get both men and women listed together. Now, we're in a, a modern egalitarian society, so uh, seeing men and, and women like this together isn't remarkable to us, but it would have been in that day. 
The fact that Paul uh, calls women his co-workers, and he calls some women uh, like Phoebe and Priscilla and Junia as leaders in the church is truly amazing. In the first century, men did not see women as their equals. And I know that a lot of people today, they look at the Christian church and they say, uh, isn't that a source of repression for women? But what's interesting is that Christianity is actually the first widespread cultural movement that elevated women alongside men. Christians are actually the ones who taught Western society to value both genders equally. So we've got this surprising mix of people for Paul's culture. And so the question is, why would these people who don't naturally fit together, what actually makes them such a tight-knit community? Because if we're looking for closer, deeper relationships in our church, it might be helpful to know what's powerful enough to bring a group like this together. And to answer that question, we've got to see what this group shared with each other. We're going to look at three things. Here's the first one. This group was close because they had shared space. They had shared space. Okay, how many of you remember this one? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. There's all the people. Okay, that's the good kid version. Here's the other one. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. Where's all the people? Across the street, there's a bar. Open the door. There they are. Now, whether you are, uh, you know, optimistic or cynical, both of those little ditties assume the same thing. They assume that when you say the word church, you're talking about this, some building, some structure. But what's interesting is when you read the New Testament, it never uses the word church to refer to a building. If you said to Paul, you know, where's the church in this town? He would have looked at you funny. Or what he would have done is he would have gathered some of the Christ followers who were with him and said, well, here's the church, or at least part of the church. We are the church because the church is people. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia. Repeat after me. Ekklesia. And that word, ekklesia, is a secular term in Greek society. It had a meaning. It meant assembly. So in a Greek city, the ekklesia was the group of citizens who would gather together to do city business. And you would never refer to the ecclesia as the place where they gathered. You would refer to the ecclesia, the church, as the people who were gathering. So when Jesus and his early followers used this word church, they were always talking about a group of people, the citizens of the kingdom who gather regularly to do kingdom business. Here's the other reason why in the Bible the word church is never referring to a building. It's because they didn't have buildings. It took 200 years before Christians started to build gathering places uh, for, to have special services. And because they didn't have a building, the question is, well, where did the ecclesia gather? Where did the assembly assemble? Well, they gathered in their homes, in houses. You can actually see this in the passage. Uh, Paul addresses five different house churches here. In verse 5, he greets the church that meets with Priscilla and Aquila. In verses 10 and 11, he greets members of two different households. And when he talks about a household here, he's probably not referring to just a single family, but to the group of people that meet in that home. In verse 14, he lists a few people and says, greet them. And then he adds, and the other brothers and sisters who are with them. But when he says that, he's not just saying, well, you know, make sure you say hello to whoever's hanging out with them when you actually talk to them. What he's doing is he's referring to the the house church that gathered with these people. Same is true in verse 15, greet all the Lord's people who are with them. So scholars who study this sort of thing, they, they look at buildings in that time to see the size of houses, and they estimate that the average house could hold at max about 20 people. 
Uh, which means that if there are five house churches or, or maybe a, a couple more that Paul didn't greet, there are probably just under 100 people in the Christian community in Rome at this time. And from time to time, this bigger group would probably get together in a larger space. Maybe they had a, a wealthier member of the community who had a bigger home that they could fit in or they'd meet somewhere in public. But a lot of times, the church life happened in each other's houses. They shared each other's space. You ever notice how being in someone's home changes how you relate to them? I remember in college, I had some professors who made it a practice every semester or so to have a group of students come over to their house for dinner. And in class, you'd see your professor and they'd be wearing a, you know, a suit coat or they'd be given prepared lectures and you'd call them doctor or professor. And, and they were friendly, but there was kind of a formal distance there. But then you'd go over to their house and you'd sit around their table, you'd eat their chili recipe and you'd see them joke with their kids and you'd you know, sit on the ugly couch and you'd see the knickknacks in the bathroom. And it's amazing how just one evening in someone's home can change how you see them the rest of the time. But what happens when you spend regular time, repeated time, in someone's home? At some point, you no longer have to knock before you go in. You know where everything goes in the kitchen because you've put away the dishes multiple times. They no longer clear that pile of laundry off of their couch when you come over because, you know, no big deal. You can grab a drink from the fridge or pour a bowl of cereal and not even have to ask. And at some point, it stops feeling like just their home and it starts to feel like your home too. It's no wonder that the early Christians called each other brother and sister. My favorite detail in this entire chapter is in verse 13. Paul says, greet Rufus. And every time I read that, I can only think of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Two things I like about this verse. First is just a fun connection. Uh, this is not the only place where Rufus is mentioned in the Bible. He is actually mentioned in an offhand comment in the book of Mark. Uh, it's in the story where Jesus is actually walking uh, to be crucified. He is carrying the crossbeam of his cross through the city. And he is so weak from the torture that he's experienced that he actually collapses and he can't go any further carrying this crossbeam. So the Roman soldiers who are there, they grab a bystander, a guy named Simon of Cyrene, and say, so you've got to carry this with him. And so Simon comes along, and the two of them uh, carry it up the hill to where he's going to be crucified. Now, there's a, a little detail that Mark throws in and says, Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. You say, why do you include that detail? Where'd that come from? Well, it's probably because some of Mark's readers would have known Rufus and Alexander, and Mark probably knew Rufus and Alexander. And you know how they knew each other? Mark had spent a lot of time in Rome where Rufus was. And probably the way he heard that story about Simon carrying the cross was from an eyewitness, from Simon's son, who saw it. It's a really cool detail about how we got the stories in the Gospels. That's not the point. I just thought it was interesting. Here's the part that I really love about this verse. When Paul greets Rufus's mother, he says, she has been a mother to me too. It's such a poignant little detail there. I think about Paul, who is so frequently on the road, as far away from the place where he grew up, and I think about how he stayed in people's homes, people who welcomed him in, and he probably stayed in Rufus's house. And there were times when, you know, he would be sitting down for a meal in the evening and Rufus's mom would make her best meal and it would feel just like his mother's house far away. Or maybe Paul would be up early in the morning and he'd be sitting, you know, as the sun came up, talking to Rufus's mom as they ate breakfast together, talking about the things that God was teaching them. Or maybe when Paul was letting his hair down and he did something that was kind of rude, Rufus's mom would say, mind your manners, young man. And he'd feel like he was at home. 
And this is total speculation, but I wonder how Paul's family had reacted to his dramatic change in life. I mean, he had been persecuting followers of Jesus, and then he becomes the most passionate follower of Jesus there was. That probably had to cause some tension in his family of devout Jews. And so I wonder if Paul, in homes like Rufus's, with, with women like Rufus's mom, felt like, I experience a sense of home that I really need. What would it be like if our community had that sense of family, that feeling of home? You might be thinking, how in the world is that supposed to happen in a big community like this? Obviously, we're not going to have that kind of closeness with all 5,000 people that are a part of this church. But the hope is that we would have it with a few people. You can sort of think of our community of kind of a funnel of shared space. It gets broad at the beginning and narrow at the end. It begins with this, with our worship services. Now, obviously, our auditoriums are not anybody's home, but they are rooms that we come to again and again. And we have significant experiences in these places. And as we have these meaningful experiences, these encounters with God, this starts to feel not just like a neutral space, but your space. And the more you're in this space with the same people week after week, even if you only talk to them a little bit before and after the service, you start to feel connected to the people that gather here. I was actually working on this message in Starbucks this week, and a couple who's been coming to our church for a little while uh, came and said hello to me. And they didn't know what I was talking about. I did not solicit this from them. But spontaneously, they said, you know what's been really cool? For the last few months, we have been coming to the same service at the same time, and we've been sitting in the same spot. And you know what's happened? We've started to get to know the people around us because we keep seeing them. And I thought, perfect, thank you. I'm going to write that in right now. This is actually the idea behind our zones strategy. Some of you are like, well, why do we do this zones thing? The, the idea is to make something that might feel like a big anonymous gathering feel smaller and a lot more friendly. If you start coming at the same time each week and you start sitting in the same zone, the hope is that you're going to start to feel connected with the people around you. Now, here's the thing. The key to this happening is consistency. People who study uh, church attendance, they have noticed a shift over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, it, what happened, has happened is this. When you gave a survey 10 or 15 years ago to someone, and they checked a box that said, I am a frequent church attender, if you followed up with them, you would find out that they attended three or four times a month, almost every week. Now, today, if you hand someone that same form and they check frequent church attender, when you follow up with them, you find out that they're only going once a month or less. Now, the interesting thing here is not that people are attending church less. It's that people who are attending church less consider themselves frequent attenders. Now, here's the thing. Every pastor I know knows this statistic. And we talk about it behind closed doors. We're like, what are we going to do about this sort of thing? And we're afraid to talk to our churches about it because we think if we bring it up, it's going to sound like whining, like you just don't want to come hear me preach or something like that. Or like scolding, like be a, you know, a better person, come to church more often. But the reason it concerns us is actually... Because we often hear people say, you know what, I've been coming to church and I'm just not connecting. You know, I, it's not doing anything for me. I'm not, I feel like I'm not meeting people. I, I don't feel a part of the group here. And a lot of times when you follow up, there's, there's a number of different reasons why that might be. But a lot of times you find out, oh man, they, they only come every five or six weeks. Maybe they watch online a little bit, but they're not actually there. And when I'm in those conversations, I always feel like it's someone who's saying, you know, I, I, have, I have dinner with my kids once a month. And I can't figure out why they're drifting away from me. And, and I think, well, maybe that's the reason. If you're feeling disconnected at church, there's a simple, easy solution. Uh, be here on a consistent basis in public worship with the same people. 
The, the funnel gets narrower from the worship service. It actually comes to community groups. That when we read about these descriptions of house churches in the first century, a lot of you might think, wow, that, that sounds really cool. I'd love to experience that sort of thing. Being in someone's home, talking about scripture, praying together, being in each other's lives, that, that would be amazing. Well, guess what? You can do that. You can experience that. That's what community groups are for. Not all of them meet in homes, but many of them do. And either way, it's a regular group of people who spend time together and share space together and they get close with one another. That's what they're for. The funnel gets narrower as you invite people from your community group, from the worship service, from the people that you've met around here to actually come into your space, to come into your home. I would love it if I could make a rule around here where every person who called Christ Community Church home once a month, they would bring someone into their home and the only conditions of what they would have to do is this. They would want to share food and pray for that person. Think about what would happen if every month each of us brought someone into our house, ate a meal with them, and prayed for them. How would that affect the feel of family in this place? If we want deep community, it cannot stay in just the official times and places. It's got to spill over. Maybe a great way to start is actually this weekend. A lot of you are having cookouts or doing something for Labor Day. Just invite someone over. Maybe, maybe someone that you think, you know what, I've wanted to connect with them. Just call them up. Uh, see if they can come over. If you want closer community, you got to spend more time in shared space. L- let's look at the second reason this community was close. They were close because they shared service. They shared service. Okay, underdog sports movies. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Uh, Hoosiers, The Mighty Ducks, Miracle, A League of Their Own, Cool Runnings, Remember the Titans. At the beginning of the movie, you know how it's going to end, right? That this ragtag group of underdogs is going to have an upset victory over the reigning champs, and it's going to be amazing. And even though you know how it's going to end, somehow, every time, it gets you. you you're like tearing up, and you're like, I, I knew what this is going to... I, I saw it coming, but still, it's happening. Why do we find these kinds of movies so stirring? I think it's a combination of two things that are happening. Uh, there is, of course, the David and Goliath plot. Who doesn't love seeing someone go up against impossible odds and succeed? It's just an irresistible story. But I think there's a second thing that's going on that might even be more powerful. Because in each of these movies, it tells the story of a group of unlikely people coming together to become friends. Uh, The misfits become a family. But here's the question. How do the misfits become a family in these movies? By doing that impossible thing together. They take on the challenge. They stand side by side and they work at something that is bigger than any one of them. And this is how Christian community is supposed to work too. In this passage, the very first person that is mentioned is Phoebe. Phoebe is not yet in the city of Rome, but she's on her way. She's actually the person who carried this letter to the church in Rome. But she's one of Paul's friends. And the question is, how do they become close? Look at verse one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, Phoebe is a deacon in her home church, and that is actually an official role within the church community. In the early church, deacons were especially responsible for allocating the community resources to meet the needs and the challenges that the church was facing. We actually have deacons here at Christ Community Church. We just call them trustees. But when you read in the Bible, the word deacon is talking about the same group of people as our trustees. Uh, Here they oversee the tangible resources of our church, our budget, our buildings, legal issues. And you know what the word deacon actually means in Greek? 
It simply means servant, one who serves. It's really clear that Phoebe had a servant's heart. Paul says she has been a benefactor, a patron of many people, including me. That Phoebe was probably a fairly wealthy person, and she used her wealth to fund the church and to partner with pastors and missionaries like Paul. And it's through that that she and Paul became friends. There are other people in this list who partnered with Paul as well. Verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila are called his co-workers in Christ Jesus. In verse 6, he says Mary worked very hard. In verse 9, Urbanus is called our co-worker in Christ. Verse 12 has several women who Paul calls, says, worked very hard in the Lord. This kind of hardworking, generous service was a mark of Paul's community, and it was through this service that people became friends. One of my favorite books is The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. As the title suggests, it is Lewis talking about four different kinds of loves and comparing them. And at one point, he compares friendship love and romantic love. He says, what, what is the key distinction between friends and lovers? And he says, it's which direction those people are facing. So he says, with lovers, with romantic love, they are looking at each other. They are face to face. They're looking into each other's eyes. They're, they're talking about how wonderful each other are. They're enjoying each other. They're delighting each other. All of their desire is directed at the other person. But with friends, friends are actually side by side. They're not looking at each other. They're looking out at a separate thing. Lewis says, the way you find a true friend or you know someone is a true friend is when someone says, hey, do you see that? And the other person says, yeah, I see it too. Isn't it amazing? And the two of you start chasing after that thing together. So friends don't look face to face very often. They don't talk about how wonderful each other uh, are all the time. They, they might appreciate each other, but they spend most of their time pursuing some outside thing. Uh, they, they chase after uh, something together. Now, in a lot of friendships, it's a simple thing. It might just be your love of motorcycles or hip-hop or the Cubs. But for followers of Jesus, that outside thing is Jesus himself. And not just Jesus himself, but the mission that Jesus has called us to. So Jesus has called his church to proclaim the gospel and to demonstrate the kingdom throughout the world. And this is a huge, impossible task. And when you look at the group of people that Jesus has assembled for his team, you think, are we even going to stand a chance at pulling this off? We are the ragtag group of underdogs facing impossible odds. We are the mighty ducks. So how do this group of misfits become a family? By taking on that mission, taking on that challenge. As we pursue Jesus' mission, it draws us together. As we serve side by side as coworkers, as partners, it turns us into friends. So if you talk to someone who's been around a church for a while, and you, you say, how did you get to know your closest friends? You'll often hear things like, you know, we went on a go team together, or, or we served in kids world or on traffic team together, or, or we both do safe families or foster care. But what happened is that person found another person who is passionate about a certain sliver of the mission. They say, we're going to be invested in this. And as they pursued that together, they got close. If you want to be closer with people, spend more time side by side sharing in service. Here's the third thing I want to highlight from this chapter. Uh, Paul's community got close because they shared suffering. They shared suffering. Look, look at verse 3 and 4 again. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Again, look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. These are people who have been on missionary journeys with Paul. That they were there for the opposition and they faced the danger. These are foxhole friends. 
These are the people that have bled with you, the people who would bleed for you. And this is a really special kind of friend. And in some ways, this is the deepest form of community, the people who will share in your pain. And the thing is, you can't really plan for these kinds of friends. A lot of times, they simply happen because you're pursuing the first two things. You're spending time in shared space and in shared service. Because shared service always leads to shared suffering. Anytime you work on something that's really worth doing, you are going to run into difficulties. You're going to try to reach out and share your faith to someone, and they're going to get offended. Or you're going to try to help out a group of people, and they're going to resist, or they're going to resent you, or they're going to relapse into their old ways. Or as you pursue the kingdom, the spiritual forces of evil are going to conspire against you to make your life miserable. Pursuing the mission of Jesus is difficult work. Shared space also leads to shared suffering. Because if you spend time close to someone, eventually you're going to see what hurts. And they're going to see what hurts you. They'll get fired. You'll lose a parent. Their marriage will fall apart. Your health will fall apart. Life is going to happen to you. And at that point, if you are not willing to share with them in their suffering, you're probably going to pull away and stop sharing space with them. But this is the kind of community that Jesus actually calls us to be. In Galatians, it says this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. That's the way we will fulfill the law of Christ. In order for that to happen, though, someone's got to know what your burdens are. We've got to be able to speak about what's really going on in our lives. Now, as I talk about this, I think about two groups of people here. There are some of us who are too slow to open up about our pain, and there are others of us who are a little bit too quick to open up about our pain. Let me address that second group first. Uh, some of you are, are so, uh, you desire so much to connect with other people. Uh, you, you desire to be known. You, you want to share yourself with people. And maybe you even want to get some help with your problems. That you have a tendency to share your story before the other person is ready to hear it. And if that's you, you probably know who you are. You say, oh, I've been in that situation where I just sort of, you know, blurted it out to people. Usually it's because your story is full of crazy twists and turns and you've picked up some scars along the way. And you feel like sharing your story is going to help you get close to this other person. But sometimes, you know, if you've just known them a little while, it kind of scares them away. I've actually seen this happen in community groups. In just the first couple of weeks, someone will open up with the really heavy, difficult stuff in their life. And it'll feel like, oh man, our group is bonding so quickly, so fast. We're getting really close. But really, there, there hasn't been enough time for the relationships to build trust and to be strong enough to, to really handle it. So, so if that's you, if that's your tendency, here's my advice. Do not stop sharing your story, but figure out a way to share it in stages. Maybe the first time you bring it up, you start with the big picture, or the next time you reveal some more details, and the next time a little bit more. And the point of this is to allow some time to pass for the other person to share some personal things about their life too. Uh, trust takes time. You've got to have this back and forth sharing. You cannot fast track intimacy by sharing more faster. However, most of us are not in that group. Most of us are on the other side of the spectrum where we never tell people what's really going on in our lives. Uh, so you're in a community group and you, you share prayer requests each week and each time it's time for you to share prayer requests, you, you talk about you know, a friend or a distant relative who's going through something hard and that's okay, but you never talk about what you're going through. Or you talk about the things that you're going through, but you, you sort of say it in a casual way. You never let on how much it's really bothering you, how it's keeping you up at night, how you're struggling with it. In our culture, a lot of times, it's men who are reluctant to share about the places where they feel weak. 
uh, last week I was talking with a guy who for some reason felt uh, willing to open up to me about how he was feeling about his life. It's probably because I'm a pastor. But he, he told me, you know, I feel like a lot of time that I'm just not really good at anything that I do. Like, I'm not that great of a dad. I'm not that great of a husband. Like, I'm not doing well at work. I, I don't feel like I'm doing well spiritually. I, I feel like a failure in just everywhere. And I don't know if he's ever shared that with other guys, but I know that if he did, some of them would say, why are you telling my secrets? Because I feel that same way. That we can be reluctant to share sometimes, but often that's how some of our deepest friendships are born. One of my closest friends is another pastor. And part of the reason we became close is I was going through a season of depression and I, I didn't know who to talk to about it. I was afraid and, and I didn't know what to do, but I took a risk and I said, I gotta tell this guy. And, and that's the reason that we got close and that's the reason we're close today. He was there for me. Who in your life knows the honest version of you? Is there anybody who actually knows the pain you're going through? Our deepest relationships are often the ones where we can share suffering with the other person. How do we become that kind of community where people actually are safe enough to do that? There's a lot that could be said about that, but I think it starts with what we're about to celebrate, with communion and what Jesus did on the cross. It starts by seeing what Jesus did to pursue a deeper relationship with us. We can share our space and our service and our suffering with other people because that's what Jesus did for us. Look at these words that Jesus spoke at the Last Supper, at the meal where he gave uh, communion. He said, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Look at what Jesus is doing. He goes to prepare a place for us, shared space with Jesus. He, he shares his business with us. He says, this is what I'm actually doing in the world. You can join in with me on my mission. You can become my coworker. He shares service with us. And he demonstrates the greatest love of all by laying down his life and sharing in our suffering. Jesus shares everything with us so that we can be close to him. Jesus calls us friends. Let's pray. Jesus, this is incredible. It, it astounds us that you would call us friends, that you would give us everything, that you would give us yourself. Jesus, we, we pray that the experience of your love would just overflow in our hearts, that that would become something that pours out so that we would love the people in our community the way you've loved us. We, we pray that this would be a community where uh, everybody can find a place to connect, to have a sense of family here, where people who are lonely can come into a home. God, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would even do some of that work now as we gather around your table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.